right, you stayed. Some of you came in a little afterwards. All right, I'm going to do something with the permission of the elders, <coughs> something that's a little different. And what I have in the beginning of this, I've got about 14 Bible verses that I want us to read. And what I would, uh, if the elders are okay with it, I would like to have 14 faithful men to come to the front and to turn to these verses and get behind the microphone and read these. Is that okay? Okay, um, and that way we can get all these Bible verses in. By the time I flip over and flip back, we're going to eat a lot of time up. But if the men will come and have these have these verses ready to read, and just kind of line up and step up and read the next verse, uh, do I have fourteen men that can come help us? All right. Here's our Bible verses, and whoever's reading one in front of you, then, all right, we're going to start with John 6 and verse 68. Whoever's behind him, John 7, 46, and, and so forth. Thank you, gentlemen. I don't usually get that kind of a volunteer response. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. Step up. John seven forty six. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. New King James Version, John twenty four. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13, and it reads, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Mark 4, 23-24. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear, with the same measure you use, <clears throat> excuse me, with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you, and to you who hear, more will be given. First John 1 John 1.6 If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. John 2 and verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Hebrews 4, 7, he again fixes a certain day, today saying through David after so long a time, just as he has said, had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thank you, gentlemen, and two extras that we didn't hear from. Um, these are verses that have to do with how the Christian deals with controversy. <coughs> and I believe very much that it is unnatural for two people or more to get along together. I'll tell you what, if you want to get along with me, just do everything I tell you. And we'll just be fine. But it's when I'm with someone else and they think, well, you know, what you want me to do, it, I don't like that idea. How about if we do this and we bounce and we negotiate and so forth? That's the nature of conflict resolution, is that it's not always one person's way. In the beginning, there was just one person here. And it was Adam. He was left to his own thoughts and to take care of the garden. Uh, so he was there all by himself. No one to argue with. No one to challenge him except God. And what God said is it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. And what he made is someone who was like man but was a counterpart of man at the same time. And God designed that that's the way it should be. He made the woman in such a way that later on she's talked about as the weaker vessel. Not that she's inferior, not that she is um, uh, too fragile, but that she, her nature is different than that of a man. You put a bunch of men together and they tend to be pretty gross if you leave them together long. Okay? You add a woman to the mix, and things start spiffing up a little bit. And the men start acting a little differently when you add women to the mix. That's how God designed it. He designed us to be able to get along, uh, or to be able to uh, have a tug and pull in this world because one person doesn't have all the bright ideas. There's a mixture and there's negotiations that go on in any relationship. In this lesson, we are talking about the home. And we're talking about conflict in the home. There are many people that work harder on tearing up their home than they do in putting it back together. And it's the little things that we chip away or can chip away at our home and family and marriage and chip away at it so much that after a while there's nothing left to chip away. And someone walks away. We have several basic needs as human beings. These are not on the PowerPoints. But there are seven basic desires of the heart. I'll just list a few of those. One of those is the desire to be heard, to know that someone is listening, that I have actually gotten my point across with someone, the desire to be heard, the desire to be chosen, Selected from among all people to be the one and only in marriage. The desire to be touched. Babies that are born and are not touched often will get failure to thrive. And they die. Not because something's wrong with them, but because they have failure to thrive, they've not been touched. We have that desire to be touched. We have that desire also to be affirmed. To be affirmed means that when I do well, somebody tells me that, and preferably somebody that means something to me. We also have other desires. And the spiritual desire is that desire to be blessed. And in our spirituality, in our in our church life or in our life with God, God fills those desires. But in our relationship with other humans, we can become strangers in the night, ships passing quietly in the darkness, and home can become little more than either a hotel or filling station, and we become as roommates and sometimes not even that good in a marriage. 
Now I'm talking a little on the negative here because when conflict uh, arouses, uh, when conflict comes up, we don't often deal with conflict well. I believe that starts back even in the dating days and something we need to teach our young people is that courtship is a selection process and we need to know more than whether somebody kisses well. We need to know more than whether we like the same music. But unfortunately, in our culture today, a lot of emphasis is placed on the physical. And little sometimes is placed on, can we work together? Talk to several people over time, and especially this week, that, uh, that uh, have, have issues that are red flags for them, and yet they're still pursuing a course of, we want to be married and be together. Where there are flags, those flags need to get addressed. They need to be talked about. That we need to be transparent. <coughs> Excuse me. Need to be transparent when those, when those areas come up. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes people will be well into a marriage before they will make a statement like, I don't really know him. I don't really know her. And that's usually said after they've gone through some kind of conflict. So in this lesson, we want to talk about how to communicate with one another. And to do that, we need to get some beliefs out of the way. And I want to talk about some of those in just a minute. But we also need to have, the, have a disposition that with God, all things are possible. And that even a marriage that looks like it's in the shambles can be resurrected and put back together. God empowers us to do that. Is it easy work? No, it's not. Can it be done? Yes, it can. Even a marriage where there has been infidelity or various other things that have come in that have challenged uh, that marriage, that event does not have to define the marriage. Instead, we need to work on what it takes to build a good and healthy marriage. Well, let me talk with you. Remember those verses because they fit all the way through here. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of those specifically that have to do with forgiveness and letting the past be in the past. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there. When we look at, uh, look at these verses, um, I am reminded of different beliefs that people have about uh, about changes in their life. We sometimes fall into ruts or habits of how we interact with each other. And we may even be resentful. We might even be bitter toward one another. We can get that way in a marriage. Uh, we may have periods of time that we are that way, but maybe, not, maybe that's not typical. But one of those belief systems is kind of a defeatist belief that whatever our area of conflict, my partner is incapable of change. These are quotes people have made to me, members of the church. My partner is incapable of change. Nothing can improve our relationship. Things are only going to get worse. Now, if we start with that as the foundation of our discussion, and we don't knock down that belief, then everything is going to go wrong. If I come into it with nothing's going to change, then everything will go wrong. We've got to deal with that. And we'll talk about how in a minute. The other is self-justifying <coughs> beliefs. These are part of our mindset that we can get. It's normal for me to believe the way I do. Anybody else in my position would react the same way I do. If he or she hurts me, they deserve to be hurt back. That's retaliation. And while most folks do not want to own statements like this, maybe as we search down in our mind, maybe those things have been there for us or we've heard them said from others. But if we start out with a self-justifying, I'm not wrong, they're wrong, I have the right to act like I do, I have the right to be the punisher, the executioner in this, and I have the right to hold this other person to the grindstone, we are not going to make any conflict resolution if one or both have that attitude. 
So one of the first things that I do as I talk with people that are marriages that are in conflict is I want to get into your belief system. What are you telling yourself? And if this is what you're telling yourself, we got to get this taken care of before we can get to solutions. This is the problem. This is the problem before the problem. And these are deep. Well, we also get a reciprocity arguments. I won't make an effort unless my spouse does. I'm not going to do anything if they don't. The way that's usually said. Or it takes two to tango. I don't see why I should be the one to do the changing. It's not fair for me to have to do all the work. Well, what am I going to get out of it? That's this reciprocity, what I call a reciprocity argument. And again, this has to get taken out of the way if this is the way we're thinking. We'll talk about how to do that. Sometimes people say, well, I'm not the problem. My partner's the problem. She just drives me nuts. Or he's crazy. He doesn't listen to me. Something's wrong with him. My problem is my partner. If we start exploring the relationship, it will just make him or me worse. So we're not going to dig into the old trash. It'll just make us worse. My spouse is crazy, impossible, filled with hate or bitterness. I had no problem in my life until we were married. And then nothing, um, there was nothing wrong with me. If my spouse would only shape up, everything would be fine. And usually what's tacked onto that is that they are not like my mama and they're not like my daddy. And so we got mama and daddy issues in here. These are some of the first attitudes that come in. And these stand as barriers that when folks come for counseling, we got to deal with this. And I believe that these are what we call cognitive distortions. That these things, these things we've got to take a look at what does the Bible tell you as to how you need to conduct yourself. Otherwise, we're just going to go in circles if this is what's in the back of the person's mind. I call it the committee in your head. If that's what you keep telling yourself, it doesn't matter what else I say, you're not going to listen to that because this thing's got hold of us. So we have to deal with that. We're going to talk about how to do that. Well, when it comes to communication, uh, there was several, several uh, surveys that were done. And, and um, the subject of transparency comes in. Couples sometimes have not learned how to be transparent with one another. And if we apply that to the church family, the church family can be the same way. But transparency means that I'm going to be honest and open with you, and I'm willing to hear what you have to say. And if you look at honest, open, and willing, you're going to see the word how as an acronym with that. How do I get better? Honest, open, and willing. In other words, I want to get this straight. I, I want it to be resolved. And we'll be honest about it. Honesty means that we're going to approach each other with respect and dignity. We're not going to trash talk each other. We're not going to lay blame and claim to, I didn't do anything wrong. But instead, each is going to look at themselves in whatever that area of conflict is. Now, that's real, real cognitive. It doesn't include that emotional part of your brain. Did you know that in your brain, that cognitive piece is over this way, and that emotional piece is in the middle here? And that the emotions often will try to override or debate with the cognitive part. What does that mean? That means sometimes we're dealing more with feelings than we are with facts. And that can take place in a marriage. Well, uh, this particular study, uh, when it's about transparency, the average couple um, doesn't do a lot of deep sharing. We may have activities we do in the day, and we kind of know how to, how to get through the day on a surface level, 
we don't do a lot of what's really going on with you. And when I talk with people, sometimes they don't have any idea that the other person is having a struggle of some sort. They're having difficulty with their job. Uh, someone, uh, they've got something going on, good, bad, or indifferent. And the couples have not communicated. They haven't talked to one another. And so all this information's in there, and each is acting on their information set. When they start talking, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, well, this particular survey um, shows that only one or two actually, uh, out of, out of uh, I believe the number's 10, only one or two are going to be transparent. That's about 10 to 20% of people that are transparent with one another. That can <coughs> go to the other person and say, this is going on, and feel free to do so. Not being judged, not being snapped at, not being argued with, but simply being heard. We call that active listening. Now, if we, if we listen to the person with the idea of attacking what they said, then we're going to go up to the, uh, to the uh, one, to two, uh, one to two on the transparency scale. Well, let's take a look at some other stuff. The other thing in communication is how, how, how we interact with one another, what we say without saying it. Now, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the cold shoulder. I'm talking about the silent treatment. I'm talking about the rolling the eyes. The nonverbal communication, what you say without saying it. Remember those basic areas of needs we have? If those needs don't get met in the marriage, we will probably look elsewhere to meet those needs. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to cheat. But it means we'll look to someone else to meet those needs. And when that happens, then we're not going to be connected as husband and wife. Because there's going to be a third or fourth party out there that's helping to meet those needs. If all I'm doing is griping about the person I'm with, then they, when someone finally affirms them, then that need is going to be met. But it may not be met by the spouse. And someone's out there telling you, well, you look nice today. I like your new do. Or, uh, you know, that's a new coat you've got on. Or whatever that might be. Or, uh, hey, you really did a great job on that report. If someone else is affirming your spouse besides you, then you need to take a look at what am I doing to affirm my spouse. Because affirmations actually build the marriage. Criticism can destroy it. Judgment can destroy it. That's true not only with a husband and wife, it's also true with children. I talked last night about the one young lady who had been told biggest part of her life that she was evil and that she was a spawn of the devil. Oh my, if you grew up like that or grew up in a culture to where you're expected to be perfect and if you're not perfect, you're an embarrassment to the family. And so we're going to be on your case all the time about your imperfection, but we're not going to affirm you in what you do that's right. Then we're going to have someone that is going to disappoint us and we may well have taught them how to do that with our own criticism. The very thing we were trying to avoid, we may in fact cause in our family by failure to acknowledge the things that are good. In addiction recovery, when I talk with, uh, in the early steps of, of recovery, I talk with uh, folks in, from families that are severely damaged by pornography, substance abuse, and other kinds of things. And those families, some of the first steps that are there is that we have, and I always suggest this, that the way you start your day as a family is that you have a morning meeting. It doesn't last more than five minutes. But here's what you do. You talk about two things you're thankful for today. Two things. What am I thankful for today? And then we talk about two things we plan to accomplish today. And then we have a meditation of some sort from some of the books or from your Bible. And we have a meditation. 
And then what we do is we have a prayer, and that starts our day. That's our, that's our five-minute check-in session each morning. And people that do that, it sounds simple, but people that do that will report back that my life went different when I started doing that than when I turned on the news to find out who got shot and who's being impeached and what kind of problems going on in Congress. And I start my day in the negative mood and I get to work and I find out what's wrong or what happened on the last shift. And now my day starts out kind of not at the top. But if I start my day out with my spouse and we are working together as a unit to talk about two things we're thankful for and two goals we have for today, and then that meditation and prayer, our day will go different. And we have a plan. No plan for your daily life is a plan to fail. No plan is a plan to fail. Just to drift through the day. I don't have a goal or an object. I'm just going to exist today and take whatever comes up. No plan is a plan to fail. Now, at the end of your day, here's what, you're going to, here's what you would do if, you do if you accept this. What you're going to do is you're going to check in again. And you're going to ask each other or volunteer to each other, what were the strengths of my day? What went well today? And then, what went wrong today? And don't spend more on one than the other. So here's the highlights and here's the barriers of my day. And then we're going to talk about did I accomplish my goals? And it may be I didn't accomplish them, but at least I made some progress on them. And we'll check in on that, and then we will have a prayer. Uh, and we may do another meditation. And we do that at the end of the day. Now that's a time that we don't let the sun go down on our wrath. The things that annoyed us, those will be the barriers. And sufficient to a day is the evil thereof, we have now a beginning and an ending to a day. It begins and it ends with God. And then what we have very neatly is one day at a time. So we wake up the next morning and we start fresh. Amen. Now that's 10 minutes. It took me longer to say it than it does to do it. That's 10 minutes. But a lot of folks have never or don't take that 10 minutes just to check in with each other. And sometimes during the day, what we need is those words of affirmation or that acknowledgement that you're the chosen one. We may decide to surprise one another. Maybe a text message or... I had one guy, I thought he was terribly cheap. He uh, decided to send his wife one red rose. And I asked him, I said... Why one? Why not send her the whole dozen? You know, what are, what's she going to think and what's people in the office going to think? He said, if they read the card, I'll tell you what they'll think. Here's what the card said. I could have sent you dozens of roses, but I sent you one. Because you're the one and only. That's kind of romantic. Anybody melt if you got that? When's the last time we reach out? We get so busy living our life and letting other people and things control our schedule to where our lives are out of control very much. And it's time to take control of that life or give God control and to know how to set limits. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning. But to know how to set limits in our relationship, even though we know how to do a lot of things, it doesn't mean that we have to do everything we know how to do. Some people get their lives so crowded. I remember back when I was a kid that they talked about washing machines. And there was going to be this automatic washing machine where you didn't have to use the old ringer type. Yeah, I'm that old. And you didn't have to use that one. You have this automatic washing machine 
And there's this thing called a clothes dryer. You don't have to hang your sheets on the line and watch them freeze in the winter. Anybody remember those days? And you know what they called those? Time-saving devices. And what I need to know is, where's all the time we saved? Often, as families work together as families, they worked as a team. And some of those time-saving devices have robbed us of time with each other. <coughs> we need to manage the time and our priorities, but I'm into tomorrow's lesson. Nonverbal communication. Nonverbal provides information about my mood or about your mood. It uh, also regulates the interaction. If someone is snarling while you're talking with them, you're probably going to pull your punch a little bit uh, or at least step back so you don't get punched. It also defines the relationship. Is a person open and honest as they talk? Do you know 93% of, of nonverbal communication is, or 93% of what we do is nonverbal? It has to do with the tone of our voice. It has to do with our facial expression. How does your countenance look? You know you have a countenance? Nehemiah was told by the king, why is your countenance fallen? So was Cain. There's a countenance or a facial expression that tells what's going on inside of our head. And that's hard to, hi hard to hide unless you're a poker face person. Well, let's talk about some things that can block us uh, in this. Clashing personality styles. You do a thing one way, and I do a thing a different way. Uh, one of my uh, uh, couples that I work with, uh, she's uh, uh, from a foreign country, and he was raised in, in the US. And they go about things differently. But you know what they have learned to do? They have learned that if we're gonna do a project together, one of us has to step back and take the, let the other one take the lead, and we may have to just sit down and watch them do it because we don't do things the same way. When I step in there, do it my way, and you step in doing your way, we have clash because we don't approach things the same way. So giving deference to one another. Another thing that can get in the way is name calling. Um, and often those names can be pretty cruel. Uh, and people have allowed those kinds of things to come into their marriage. Um, I ask sometimes, what are, what are the things you say to each other? And that thing like spawn of the devil would be one of those. Uh, or you're just an evil woman. Uh, you're, just, you're just a hard-headed man. Or you're dumb as a box of rocks, which is usually true. Uh, but uh, uh, things like that get in the way. Sarcasm, ridicule, uh, insulting each other. Those are not things that are going to make for effective communication. Our verses we read in the beginning tell us to put away those kinds of things put away from herself railings. You know what railings are? Blasphemy. If we do that against God, we understand that blasphemy. But we can blaspheme our mate by talking bad about them, by talking down about them, by insulting them, by discounting them, which helps them to feel they don't have value, or by threatening them. And often sex is the bargaining tool. For, uh, for threats. Uh, blaming. Well, it was your fault. If you'd done this, is what, and instead of dealing with the issues we have, we want to know who to blame. I note that a lot with kids, and I also note it with adults. And I note it uh, if I'm talking to uh, coworkers, is the first thing they want to know is, well, who told you that? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What matters is, is it true? And if it's true, let's deal with it. If it's not true, let's resolve that. But it doesn't really matter who said it. Now, if somebody told us wrong information, we probably need to backtrack that. But that's not part of this conversation. We need to stay on the subject. Blaming, inflexibility. I'm not going to make any changes or being defensive. Families often have some unspoken rules. And among those and I hate to say it, but especially families in the church. 
is we have these unspoken rules because we have a particular persona that we want to display around one another. I can, I've talked to numerous families that to see them assembly, assemble with the saints, you think these were model families. But when they get home, things are a lot different. And I want to say something really sharp. If you're not a Christian everywhere, you may not be a Christian anywhere. If we are faking in public to create an image, and we get home and we take off the gloves and we act however we want to act, do whatever we want to do, then that's not Christianity. Somebody asked me, why are we losing so many of our young people? And it might be because they have seen displayed in our homes what is talked about in church as wrong. Hmm. Godly families. You see, we create impressions on our kids. I think of one kid that, uh, that we worked with, and this kid, parents said, oh, they don't know what we're, they don't know what we're doing. He had an alcohol problem really bad. And, well, the kids don't know. And I said, are you sure about that? And so I called his two children in the room. One of them was four years old. Her name was Michelle. And I said, Michelle, tell me about your daddy. What's he like at home? And she looked at me just as square. And I remember daddy had told me that she didn't know. She looked at me as square as any adults ever looked at me. And she said, do you mean drunk daddy or real daddy? They had never had the conversation with her. But that little kid knew. We pick up those nonverbal skills of what's happening in the home, and they infect not only the husband and wife, they affect the whole family. And the ripple effects of that end up affecting the church. And especially when everything finally comes to a head and the lid blows off and we wonder, well, what happened? They're such a nice couple. And the truth is, maybe what happened is that they came into church every service and shook hands and said, how you doing? And they were fine every time. But they weren't fine. And here's the problem. Many times in our families, trust has left the room. And many times in our churches, we don't trust each other. If you know my secrets, what I'm working on, how are you going to treat me? If a spouse knows our secrets, how are they going to treat us? And so what we do instead of being transparent is we back up. And when we back up, we develop these rules, don't trust, don't feel, and don't tell. And we become a family of secrets, a closed family, a closed unit. We might even go so far as to say, well, you know, if folks out there really knew what's going on, your daddy might lose his job if he's the preacher. So we can't be telling this stuff. So we live in a glass house. Well, how are we going to resolve conflicts? First is, all couples have conflicts at some time because we are emotionally attached and we have conflict. Conflict in itself is neither good nor bad, but it is inevitable. In other words, conflict's going to come. Uh, how we handle the conflict is indicative of our relationship with God and with each other. So what are the rules of conflict? Well, let's see if we can find, find some things. Um, first thing I want to suggest before we go into all that is women seem to regard, when you're having communication, women seem to regard communication as a way basically to keep a conversation going. So they may tell you something that they don't want you, if you're a man, to be out here uh, commenting necessarily. They just want to keep a conversation going. But men often, when the woman tells them something, they often want to go fix it. And so the conversation kind of gets messed up. It's like, I didn't tell you that because I, I, I just wanted to talk to you. 
And so not all talk is about solutions. Women have a tendency to connect bridges between their conversational partner um, uh, and, and, and them, and they just want to have a conversation. Men do not always follow that rule, and they often appear to ignore, uh, ignore the comments by their partner. One man even said, eh, I don't listen to her anymore. I don't know what she said. Uh, she told me once, if it's important, she'll say it four or five more times. Excuse me? What's the nature of your relationship? Did you just say you don't listen to your wife? <coughs> How do we train each other? Women are often, they often interpretate or interpret conversational aggressiveness by their spouse. Well, you, you sure said that snippy. Or what's wrong with you this morning? You know? Did you have a grouch pill? Men seem to view their own aggression, aggressiveness simply as a form of conversation. But sometimes that aggression is about shutting you down. And if you don't shut down by what I say, I'll call you a name and I'll shut you down that way. Or I will talk about your mother. Or I'll talk about your daddy. And we'll throw all those together and that'll shut you down and we'll go off spinning off in space. And who knows, we may even get three or four days of not talking to one another out of that. Women are more likely to share their feelings and their secrets, but men are less likely uh, to discuss intimate topics. They would rather talk about sports and politics and their job, but about intimate kinds of things, uh, men are less likely to do that. Okay. A whole bunch of stuff on there. Okay, here's some other issues that we can run into, and that is not listening or not focusing on the problem we need to address. Identifying the problem or what is it that is the point at issue. And it's not about everything in our life, it's about that point. By not listening when our spouse talks to us about what's going on, because we've already made up our mind what we're going to believe on it. And... <coughs> Finding fault with a solution or with the solutions offered by a spouse, that's not necessarily going to be helpful. Okay, here's how we go about resolving conflicts. One is we use active listening. Now, active listening means that I listen with my eyes. I said that right. I listen with my eyes as well as my ears. Because my eyes are going to pick up the cues that are going on with their body language and, uh, and other, other, uh, other things in the environment. The proximity, how close we are to each other. And so we use active listening skills and we listen to what the person's saying with the goal in mind of I want to capture the exact thought of what you're telling me. Now it may be that we miscommunicate. And in, those, in, in any cases... We need to get used to summarizing or to paraphrasing what the person's saying. And this works anywhere, in the job, place, or in the home. And it's like, well, let me see if I heard you right. And we'll repeat that back. You know, the other day I went on a journey I didn't have to go on. Because I ended up in one place and the person I was talking to wanted me at another place. And I ended up sitting, waiting 45 minutes at the wrong place because we miscommunicated. And so we, we talked about that. It's okay, how, how are we going to be better uh, next time? It's like you, we need to specify and underline the place. And, uh, and that will work. But we need to use active listening skills to paraphrase and to summarize. I statements are much better than you statements. You've already heard this piece. And that is, you is a blame statement. You did this, you did that, you, 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 and we're going to have a fuss because that's going to put a person on the defensive. Rather than, you know, I was real hurt when this happened. Uh, I need to understand what was going on. That's about you, okay, or about I. Um, also, acknowledge our spouse's feelings and conflicts. 
I know you're hurting right now, and I'm hurting for you, and I'm so sorry I didn't mean to make you cry, or I didn't mean to make your blood pressure go up and you turn bright red. I didn't mean to do that. You know, all I'm trying to do is to address this issue, and can we come to some solution? Knowing that sometimes both parties will not win, but we don't always have to have a winner and a loser. Sometimes there's a compromise. Not every battle is worth fighting. So we acknowledge our feelings, and we also acknowledge if there's a conflict, we may even decide to, all right, let's do it your way this time, see how that works. And if it works, we'll do it again that way. But if not, then we'll try it my way. And we may have to do that. One person kind of taking a back seat on it uh, instead of headbutting each other. Uh, check to find out if what the person's we think they said is what they actually said. Capture the exact, the exact thought and stay t focused on the topic. Say what you mean and be clear with your message. Remember that when we're upset, we're speaking with the emotion and we need to engage the cognitive. We need to think. If we act out of, just out of emotion, then we're going to be in a win-lose power playing mode. Um, and here's what I suggest to people. Eric Byrne, and our time is, is up, but let me say this. Eric Byrne had a thing that he called, uh, that he called um, transactional analysis. And in that, what he said is each one of us has a, an ego state that is the adult now the adult's going to say, you better go to your room. I told you you need to do this. That's the adult. Okay. We also have a parent. That's the rational part of us. That just kind of are, are the parent and the adult. The adult is the rational part. And that adult is, here's the facts, just the facts, kind of the Joe Friday dragnet kind of thing. And then the other part of us is the child. And more often than not, what happens when we are, we've got parent, adult, and child, and our partner also has parent, adult, and child, and when one of us goes into our parent, then we are looking for something out of the other, which is usually I need you to be in the child because the parent needs a child if you're going to act like a parent. And so what we do is we try to reduce this person to act like a child, to get in that emotional frame to act out, to speak out, to, to be dysfunctional, parent-child. And often what will happen is if a person doesn't want to be in the child or be, uh, be out here just you know, set them off, then what will happen is that person will flip into their adult and what happens is it flips you into your child. And so we throw darts at each other on kind of this interplay of who's going to be the parent, who's going to be the child. And that's what conflict is about. The reality is that both of us need to be adults. And we need to quit the game playing. Actually, Eric Byrne wrote a book called Games People Play. And he talked about the parent and the child and how we keep trying to flip roles when we're in conflict. And what we need to do is be in the adult, especially if we're looking for solutions. If we are not in that adult, kind of being in our rational mind, thinking it through, what is it we want to do, um, who needs to give in, and we're having an adult conversation, we can come to resolution. But we're not going to be in a resolution if I'm the parent and I'm going to force you to be the child, or flip it and vice versa, or even worse, if we both become children and there's no parent to guide and guard us and keep us from killing each other. But that's what happens in conflict. Well, our verses tell us God doesn't want us in that kind of a conflict. Our time is up for this morning. There's much more on the PowerPoint, and I would encourage you to take a look at that. Well, they're either hungry
Yeah. Hopefully somebody's asking me about forgiveness at some point. Anybody want to know about forgiveness? Yes. Write it down. <laughs> All right. Please discuss the narcissistic personality and characteristics. There's another category besides what I talked about, and these are actually Axis two diagnoses in, in the manual. In other words, they're secondary diagnoses, and they have to do with personality, and there are seven or eight different types of personalities uh, that are categorized in, in, uh, in, the, in that. One of those is obsessive-compulsive personality. Uh, we see a lot of that among Christians. And another one is the narcissistic personality. A narcissist is one that everything is about me. Regardless of the conversation, they'll flip it on, they'll flip it on themselves and bring themselves. So you may be talking about your issue, and someone may say, well, that's nothing. Well, this happened to me. And then next thing you know, we're talking about them. We've just totally left that person. That's a narcissist. A narcissist sees themselves as the center of attention and that the whole world needs to revolve around them. Um, narcissists um, often have little regard for how others feel because it's all about how I feel since I'm the center of attention. They uh, will blame people that they are n never at fault. It's always someone else's fault. Um, and, uh, and there's all kinds of books out there about narcissists and some about even how, how do you live with a narcissist. Uh, a narcissist may get even to the point that what they will do is they will sabotage other relationships in order to be in the focus of the focus to be on them and for them to come out looking smooth and nice. Those would be some of the characteristics that come to mind on that. Did you write that down? <coughs> What's the appropriate way to ask for forgiveness? Write it down. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about forgiveness. Unfortunately, there are two schools of thought out there on forgiveness in the brotherhood. One of them scares me. The one school says when our brother or sister asks for forgiveness and we believe they're genuine, that we forgive them on the spot. And the verses we would use for that is if my brother sins against me in a day so many times and so many times asks for forgiveness, how many times do I forgive him? And Jesus says 70 times 7. That's a lot of time for somebody to sin against me in a day. I'm, that might get on my last nerve. I might get tired of forgiving them. But Jesus goes to the extreme on that, and what he's saying is, when the person asks for it, if you have reason to believe they're genuine, extend that forgiveness. And that we do that, just like Jesus said in Matthew 6, about verse 15, after the model prayer, for if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. In other words, there's a parallel process here. And that is, as God forgives, when we genuinely ask for forgiveness, then when, as God forgives, so we ought to forgive each other. Now, forgiveness goes a little different with God than it does with us. Because God says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God puts it out of his mind. That's a harder task for a human. It's not impossible, but it is harder. It's hard not to keep bringing that up and beating somebody over the head with it for whatever they did. But that's what is required of us, is that if this thing is forgiven, it needs not to be a barrier between us anymore. In other words, where we have repentance and forgiveness, we have rest re restoration. That's what happens in our relationship with God. The relationship is now restored because forgiveness has been given. The second view on this is that we don't need to forgive anybody unless they show fruit of repentance. And sometimes that can go way too far. Now that fruit meat for repentance is a statement that 
Jesus uh, at the Bab John the Baptist baptism, that was what was said to the Pharisees, that they needed to go and to show fruits meet for repentance. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. Uh, but, uh, but there, uh, fruits that are suitable or that demonstrate repentance. So in that case, it takes time to demonstrate that the person is on a track that they can now be trusted. I have a little problem with that one. I do understand that sometimes we don't just immediately jump back into a thing. And that if a person has had a problem, that I may, I may, I certainly need to be aware of that problem and encourage them not to get back in that problem again. Uh, so if a person tells me that they have a problem with lusting after somebody in my family, uh, I might be a little careful about my family being around them. Not that I haven't forgiven them, maybe, but that I don't want to present opportunity for that thing to happen again. But that doesn't mean that I cut them off. I have great problem with this position because what it says is that forgiveness is such that we can forgive and then withdraw relationship with that person for the rest of their life or to treat them as second class hold it over them the rest of their life while I'm waiting for the fruit meet for repentance. And that usually is where that ends up. And what that tells me is that's how people get uh, grudges and bitterness and all kinds of issues going on. And that certainly is not how God forgives me. When I ask God to forgive me, I don't expect Him to park me for the rest of my life and make me pay for something that He said, I forgive you, now get on with the show here, buddy. There's another issue with forgiveness, and that is some thinking or saying, like the one guy in court steps up out of nowhere and says, I forgive you. You remember that. Someone saying, well, I forgive you before you ever ask. I don't read about that as biblical forgiveness. What I see is forgiveness is on the condition that it is requested. And when it's requested, then it is to be extended. That's what I read in my Bible. And I don't believe it's automatic that I'm going to forgive you whether you ask for it or not. Now, there is an element of that to where I am to stand, you and I are to stand ready to forgive people. But the forgiveness doesn't, is not extended until it's requested. Now, I think that's biblical. God doesn't just automatically forgive us. We do things wrong. God just kind of kicks it under the rug. What is the conditions of our forgiveness? We know about baptism. We also know about repentance, confession, and prayer. And so those are ways in which the Bible talks about forgiveness. But a lot of people today are kind of messed up on what forgiveness really is. And when we've forgiven a person... We don't keep bringing it up. I talk to some families that say, I remember back when we were first married and uh, you looked at this guy and the fact is you, uh, you kissed him. We'll just use one example. You kissed him way back in our marriage and that was 25 years ago. And I forgave you. If you forgave him, why'd you bring it back up? Who wants to have their past constantly thrown in their face? And every argument we have, we pull that out. That's our big gun. We're going to slam them with it. If a person did something wrong, we need to forgive it. We need to put it out of our mind. This is not a, a part of any fuss or argument. This is something that's in the past. The past needs to be past. But forgiveness a lot of times takes a takes a different turn than it does biblically. We need to do a lot more studying on what, what true forgiveness really is. And when we understand how God has forgiven us, we'll understand how to forgive each other. And the person that does not know how to forgive their fellow person does not really understand how God forgives. 
Yes. Is it possible to have a type of forgiving spirit towards someone that has not requested it in the way that Jesus had said when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do? Yes. Yes. We, and, that, and that is, Mitch, what we're supposed to have is a forgiving spirit. I stand ready to forgive you. I'm not holding ill will against you. You know, I don't, I don't need that stuff in my life. And I stand ready to forgive you, but you kind of need to do something on your part. It's not all, it's not all on me to just say I forgive you. Uh, at the same time, I do believe in grace and mercy. And sometimes I just, somebody may owe me an apology, but, you know, that's on them. And uh, if they ever decide to do that, that's still on them. And more often than not, they'll come around. Uh, that's grace and mercy. Uh, it's not, we are not the punishers. Vengeance belongs to God, not me. And if someone has wronged me, it's not my job to get even. Agree? Yes, sir. I've seen that described as consequences such that human beings will impose consequences on other people who have sinned mm -hmm. and even ask for forgiveness and done all that they could to bring about resolution in their relationship. And parents can give their children consequences. But ultimately, God is the one who gives man consequences for his sins. I don't read in my Bible where we have the responsibility as individual Christians to impose consequences on other brothers and sisters With what measure you measure, it'll be measured back to you. If that's the measure, then hold on, because God wants that same scoop. So if you don't want to be treated that way, don't treat others that way. And Gary, that's sad when that happens. Now, that brings up another question, and that is, when we have been wronged, and someone keeps holding on to a grudge, then what's the Christian supposed to do? And the answer to that is the Christian takes the high road. Do things hurt us? Yeah. It can hurt when we have conflict and there's no particular resolution. But we take the high road. And again, we stand ready to forgive. And what we're doing is we are doing what the next right thing. I have to tell myself that a lot with people is all you have to do is the next right thing. That's all I have to do, is just do the next, I do this, okay, now what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? What's the next thing? And if all I worry about is that, instead of trying to predict outcomes, I'm gonna make it a lot further down the road. Other thoughts? There's another question, okay. We'll try not to step close to the edge. My dad was a preacher. He fell out of the pulpit one time. <laughs> it was the first night of a meeting. He fell out of the pulpit. Okay. Should you forgive if the spouse is not repentant? The answer that I would give to that is, as Mitch points out, points out, is that we stand ready to forgive. It's in my heart to forgive. It's like it's in God's heart to forgive you. God's not willing that any should perish. I don't, I don't wish you harm. Yes, you did me wrong. And in this, I don't know who wrote this, but sometimes we have a cheating spouse. Um, sometimes we have situations that are hard to live with. And what we can do is we can let those make us very bitter in life. Uh, we can keep reliving it and ruminating over and over, playing the woulda, coulda, shouldas of how how we might have handled that in such a way that we came out a little bit better. But um, we stand ready to forgive, but that spouse needs to acknowledge what, uh, needs to acknowledge that. And, and if they don't, uh, certainly as a Christian, what do we do if someone sins against us? We're told to go to them and talk to them. And if that Christian happens to be my spouse, I need to talk to them about that. That's your first step. And then there's steps about taking it to the church. 
Um, and I know of some families where that's happened, where a spouse uh, was into pornography. And he says, I'm not going to quit that. And, uh, and so the, the lady took it a step further. She took a couple witnesses, and then she took it to the church. And he was, he was ready to go into treatment when they took it to the church. He didn't want his brethren to know what he was doing uh, with his computer. So uh, he, uh, he got some help. God's plan works. But don't hold things against people and they don't know they don't know you're holding something against them. Tell them what's going on. All right, anything else? Enjoyed the morning with you. Hopefully we've learned a few things or at least uh, uh, been able to uh, profit from our time together. Okay?